Welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, we sat down with Orchid Bertelson, Head of Consumer Experience Strategy, Technology, and Innovation at Nestle USA, to discuss how the corporate giant behind thousands of recognizable brands like Hot Pockets, San Pellegrino, Haagen-Dazs, and KitKat thinks about innovation in the D2C space. Orchid's a brilliant strategist and a master collaborator working with over 100 stakeholders across 30 brands on any given week. We cover how Nestle launches internal brands. We're gonna meet Ruth the Cookie Coach, Nestle's first digital human. We're gonna learn how Nestle quantifies success from strategic initiatives like this, why private labels have an unfair advantage in the D2C space. We're going to hear a little tiny bit about Nestle's metaverse plans, but really just understand a little bit more about what the metaverse is and how it might affect CPG. And we're gonna learn about what AI really means in CPG. I hope you enjoy it on with the show. So the metaverse is effectively the digital world that we would live in. We don't go online anymore, we just are online. There's all these different forces that are kind of reshaping like how you engage with other people and, and what you own and what you don't. And so the metaverse is really fascinating because as people spend more time in Animal Crossing or Fortnite and want to buy shirts or buy goods for their avatar, they're spending real money on it. So the question for brands is like, where can I play in that space that feels authentic to the brand and to the audience, knowing that they're going to be spending time there? Too often, marketers struggle to turn customer data into actions in a timely manner. Simon Data's customer data platform gives you the ability to drive faster marketing results from a centralized platform. Visit simondata.com DTC to see how Simon can help you accelerate time to value, boost revenue, and improve your marketing team efficiency. Unlock the power of your customer data today by visiting simondata.com DTC. Welcome to the podcast, Orchid. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your position at Nestle? Yeah, sure. So I'm the head of consumer experience strategy and innovation at Nestle USA, which is a portfolio of about 40 brands. Um, so Nestle is the largest food and beverage company in the world. Um, we have over 2000 brands, but within my immediate portfolio, we only have 40. And I know I'm just saying 40, um, but it ranges from, you know, frozen pizza like DiGiorno, Tombstone to baked goods or um, baking ingredients like Toll House to coffee made. Um, so it really tends to run the gamut. Very cool. Which do you have any do you have any favorites? Are you allowed to have favorite brands? Uh, I think I'm, su- I'm not supposed to because having a favorite brand within the portfolio is like saying you have a favorite child. Mm-hmm. But if you're a parent, you know that you have a favorite child. Um, so I will say that I love Chameleon. When you when you look at what I incorporate into my day to day routine, uh, Chameleon cold brew is always on hand. Um, Pellegrino and Perrier are, are some of my favorites. Um, you've got Toll House in the pantry whenever my daughter and I uh, bake. So, yeah. so yeah, it kind of, uh, it's hard to pick, but those are the ones that are coming top of mind. So I'm sorry to my other brands. <laughs> those are great. I, those are just the ones that are personally, that are, that are more personally in your yeah. life. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't take yeah. it personally. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Now follow through on what it, you have this portfolio of brands mm-hmm. and then what's your purview? What's the way you interact with each of these brands to add value? Yeah, sure. So uh, my team is responsible for all owned digital experiences. So brand.com, D2C, merch stores, 
um, CRM, so loyalty strategy, consumer marketing data strategy. And so that's one side of the house, uh, which is more performance and, and optimization based. And then the other side of my team is focused on innovation. Um, so split between new business models like D2C, so that's new for us, and then um, emerging technology. So largely the focus on that side is going to be automation, artificial intelligence. Oh man, we'll have to save artificial. We'll put a pin in artificial intelligence. Get to the, at, at the end. Sounds good. Um, can you explain a little bit more detail about how your your position interacts in the D 2 C space? Are you sort of overseeing mm-hmm. the D 2 C initiatives? Like, does every one of these brands have a D 2 C initiative? No, not not every brand has a D 2 C initiative. Um, and so, I think the probably the most well known one and the first out of the gate is Chameleon Cold Brew. So last year, um, yeah, I can't believe it was only last year. It feels like it was such a long time ago, but we were actually moving our merch store um, over from another platform onto Shopify. And that project was wrapping up right before COVID hit in March. And so when COVID hit, we said, all right, well, now we've built this entire infrastructure and foundation. Can we go ahead and start selling our ready to drink canned beverages through there? Um, And those were a new product that just launched the previous fall. Uh, and so at the time, you know, we had really been tinkering with D2C. Um, Chameleon's probably the most well-known, but certainly not the first. Um, the first product that we um, tested D2C on through Shopify was something called Jacked Rabbit, and it came out of our internal innovation incubator. So Jacked Rabbit was really uh, based off of Nesquik, um, but a high-protein version of it. And so we've kind of always been dabbling a little in the D2C space, And, you know, it's starting to get bigger. No, um, it is not right for every single brand in our portfolio. And we can certainly talk about why that is. Um, But ultimately, D2C is not a standalone channel for us. It is entirely intended to be part of an omni-channel strategy. Uh, A lot of what it is right now is a marketing asset. So it allows us to, um, you know, do things quite nimbly, like this partnership we had with Cameo last year. Uh, where you could order a pep talk from a favorite celebrity and then um, you would actually get a code emailed to you and you could put it in that code into the chameleon website and get you know a a free box of chameleon merch and and some coffee as well so we really like d2c um from you know the the viewpoint of it helps us launch new innovation pretty quickly um, but we do not view it as a standalone channel. Have you ever used it to inform decisions that you make up the chain in uh, through other channels, given its like live feedback nature? Yes. So I think the challenge with D2C when you don't have an existing audience is getting enough data um, for your insights to be statistically significant, right? Um, so we've certainly done partnerships with other D2C brands, existing ones, where we launched our product through their platform. Um, so NatureBox, um, based out of California, is an example of that. Um, and they specialize in natural snacking, uh, so very much an adaptogenic focus. And so we partnered with them early, well, I guess late last year, to launch our Chameleon Cold Brew ready-to-drink beverage. And so that was really great because, you know, through their existing audience base, we could do some message testing um, and add a significant level, right? So we knew that a message like, hey, tastes good is really table stakes, but it drove the highest um, email click-through rate to the website. Um, But a message like clean energy, which is more functional, makes sense, that drove the highest add to cart. And then the message that drove the highest repurchase um, was really around sustainability and organic. And so when you when you think about, you know, where those messages make sense in the funnel, um, you can use logic, but it, it was nice that we had the data to back that up. 
So you must be an interesting personality type because you probably interface with so many different people in so many different roles within these organizations in order to enact change and sort of take advantage of things that are happening in the space. Uh, like how many people are you sort of interacting with on a, on a you know, weekly basis? So it's funny because I actually know the answer to that question because we uh, use Microsoft, we use Outlook. And so it started to send me weekly updates of how many people I've interacted with. So I don't have a breakdown by week, uh, but just last month, I regularly collaborated with about 154 people. Um, So to your point, yes, I mean, there are absolutely a ton of internal stakeholders Um, We have our cross-functional teams with finance, supply chain. We've got executive leadership team that we need to, you know, update. We've got our various brand teams. And then I also have an entire network outside of Nestle of uh, venture firms, startup founders, um, things of that nature. So a lot of collaboration. Um, You know, I get a lot of energy, too, by interacting outside because, I think the challenge with a company as large as Nestle is that you are always finding new people every day and new opportunities and new projects. And so I think it's very easy to be a little insular sometimes. Mm. Um, And so for innovation, it's so important to look at what's happening, not only outside our company, but across other industries, because there are some industries that are just first movers when it comes to emerging tech like beauty or fashion. And, you know, I'll say one thing about innovation is that there's this... um, I think misconception in the U.S. that innovation has to be completely new. The idea has to be, you know, never thought of before and first of its kind, whereas innovation can also be bringing an idea from another industry into yours. It could be, you know, maybe copying another idea and making it better. Um, And so, you know, it's really important for me and my team to continue to look outside, to continue network outside and really find those subject matter experts and, and bring that learning inside. Incremental innovation. If you know, it feels it feels a little bit like we live in this era of moonshots uh, and, and things where you know miraculous things are possible. But I think it, that's a really smart insight to really focus on that iterative ability and that ability. Just we, you know, in advertising, we call it like scaling horizontally, where you know you have a tactic that works for one brand and then you're able to scale it, you know, across others. And that that would be where my next question goes. Like, are there some things that across your portfolio you've been able to apply and see wins uh, sort of consistently? Are what are those things? Yeah, I think it's a great question about scale, um, because that is the most challenging. When you have um, a portfolio of brands where they all have slightly different business objectives, different types of audiences they either have or are going after, it's really hard to find one size fits all, what, no matter what it is. And so I'll speak specifically to, um, I guess, our merch stores. Um, yeah, I know just within the past couple of years, a lot of brands largely driven by QSR have launched merch stores um, where, you know, instead of just selling their food, they're selling, you know, logoed goods, branded items, you know, tracksuits, whatever it might be. And that was something that we wanted to test out. And, and there are various models of going about a merch store. You can go into licensing. You could own and operate your own. Um, you could collaborate with some of the well-known creators in the space now. Um, and so we decided to launch a merch store and we went with Hot Pockets as the first one out of the gate. Of course. Is it Hot Pockets? No, <laughs> Hot Pockets is third out of the Very- gate. Sorry about that. So Stouffer's was actually first. Okay. Um, and Stouffer's, you would think you're like, all right, well, like, I don't know. Like that's a pretty legacy brand. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to age down and, and there's a lot of love for that brand, a lot of love okay. for the lasagna and, and for mac and cheese as well. 
And so they were the first ones out of the gate. I think there were a lot because we hadn't operated in that space before. Um, we just learned a lot in the process of even, you know, who to pull in at what time, right? Because you have an internal agency to do some of the design. We've got external vendors to set up um, to actually buy the merch. Um, and then, of course, everything was disrupted by COVID. And so we had really long lead times um, for getting a lot of those items on our site and into consumers' hands. So they were the first out of the gate. We learned a ton, um, especially as large corporations. I think there's a habit because you have the resources to outsource um, a lot of the work. And so through the process, we really found out what we needed to have internally versus finding external expertise for. And so then the subsequent brands were um, Hot Pockets and DiGiorno. Um, Hot Pockets, I believe we have a sleeping bag out. Uh, don't quote me on that. It's that either, only makes it's sense. It's coming out or it is out. Um, but we're sense. very excited about it. You know, it's a really nice way to in- continue to engage with our loyal audience. And when you think about a merch uh, strategy, it's not really about us getting into the T-shirt space. It's about us engaging in a different type of way um, with our most loyal consumers. Because if you don't love the brand, you're probably not going to wear a mac and cheese sweatsuit, right? Which we do have in the store for Stouffer's. Please go check it out. <laughs> so so I think that's an, that's an example of where we were able to scale uh, horizontally. But again, that's an example where not every brand in our portfolio is going to have a merch store. Um, we don't no. want to have one for Nescafe. You know, we don't have one for Coffee Mate. Um, it doesn't mean that we'll never have one. Um, but, you know, in terms of the strategy and the business needs, like they, they just don't really align right now. So go a little deeper on that. How do you actually quantify? So obviously there's some revenue there. It's funny, we're as a newsletter and a media company, people like our merch, they like our hats. We thought like, why don't we just throw a, you know, a merch store on the site? We've had people request it. We just haven't allocated the resources to, to do it. And we, I'm curious, yeah, how you value it in, in the overall set. I understand the engagement, but what are, what are some metrics that, 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 that correlate to that? Sure. Um, I think with merch stores, it's easy to look at as an alternate revenue stream. Um, but I think if you only evaluate it in that way, it tends to be a, a bit myopic and you're missing the larger opportunity. So if you're establishing a D2C platform, merch store in this instance is also D2C, um, it can be a launching pad for referral codes, for loyalty programs, you know, earning points and redeeming them into the store. And so beyond engagement, I mean, it is number of consumers who have opted in to communicate one to one with us. Um, and so we do measure success in those ways. We measure success by, you know, the revenue coming in from it, um, just the overall sales. We measure it in terms of how many consumers have opted in to engage directly with us. And then we also measure it in PR impressions, right? Um, because, you know, there's only so much you can say about a Stouffer's lasagna time and again. Um, and that is my daughter. Oh! <laughs> yes, baby. I think you can go ask daddy for a snack. I think he might be outside. I'm going to text him. Okay. Well, she's wearing her life jacket. Amazing. All right, Quinn, bye. Oh, man. Okay. So what I want to talk about next, you mentioned an innovation hub, and I'm always really fascinated by the way that, uh, you know, huge companies, you know, we've, we've chat, chatted with Unilever and Kellogg's and some other, some other big companies as well, how they go about, uh, you know, keeping innovation like really fresh in giant companies. And then the second part of that question would be to like dovetail into how does Nestle actually grow and how many businesses are, are you trying to grow? How many brands are you trying to build internally versus acquire externally? Yeah, sure. I mean, those are all great questions. I can answer some of them. Okay. <laughs> so we can, we can start, start with how we approach innovation. So innovation, I mean, 
to be candid, I think the the word innovation has been a bit overused. Um, I think a lot of people talk about it in terms of new ideas or even optimizations are some called sometimes called innovation. And so when you talk about a large food and beverage manufacturer, innovation usually goes directly to product innovation. So with product innovation, we have quite a few teams working against it. We've got our brand teams who have innovation managers who focus on new formats. Um, you know, so our Toll House edible chocolate chip cookie dough um, actually came from the brand team, right? You've also got innovation in terms of digital experiences um, or services. And so that kind of emerging tech innovation on the marketing side sits within my team. Within supply chain or any of the other functions, there is actually a centralized team that works actively against that. And then we actually have something called open channel, which has been covered publicly before as well. And it's our internal Shark Tank. So we actually just opened another one, another competition, and we solicit ideas from all across the organization. We actually had one, um, I want to say about two months ago, that opened it up to the entire North American team. And we usually have a pretty tightly bound challenge associated with it. So the last one was all around sustainability. So soliciting ideas from all over the organization, all across functions, levels, you name it, just to get ideas around how to create sustainable solutions that are either consumer facing or you know just to help our processes. So we have this platform and employees go on and they vote you know the top ideas and then the top ideas are evaluated by an internal committee and then they actually the founders the quote-unquote founders or the ideators of these ideas get to pitch in front of our executive leadership team and then our executive leadership team will award a couple of the projects with some seed money so very much like shark tank and you know this initiative is great because it shows that good ideas can come from anywhere and to your point about large organizations and, you know, even um, this idea of territory, right? People fighting over territory or saying, like, that's my idea or that's my project. And what we try to really do in the innovation space is just break those barriers down because there could be a seed of an idea based on an employee's observation of how we engage with existing consumers or even how we run our uh, business day to day that could really spark something special. So for innovation, it happens at all levels and, and in various ways. And I assume you don't know the exact growth strategy of the entire Nestle Corporation that you may not be able to speak to. But I wanted to then back up and talk about a little bit about the the marketing innovation and the marketing technology that you interface with. What in what in the MarTech space are you excited about for, for some of the brands in your portfolio? Sure. Uh, right now, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things in the space. Um, I'm very jazzed about social commerce. Um, is one, and then we can get really dorky about CDPs and and where they fit in the organization as well. But with social commerce, you know, there are a lot of different ways to describe it or to define it. And in China, you could speak to group buying. So let's say you want to buy a shirt for $20. If you get five of your friends to get in on it, maybe it lowers the price to $15. You've also got this idea of a QVC 2.0, so super great within the makeup space is really doing that where they have a ton of creators doing product reviews, um, streaming. You've got Amazon starting their streaming channel um, that is selling product as well. But for our definition, what we tend to focus on is social commerce that's being done through social media platforms. So think Instagram shops within Instagram. Um, think, you know, I think TikTok had announced their partnership with Shopify, although I don't think we've really seen any um mm 
features launch from that partnership yet. Um, but just this idea that we spend so much time in social media and it's effectively collapsing the funnel. So from discovery to purchase, I mean, it's as seamless as a click of a button. So that idea is really interesting. Uh, we've, we've been testing that quite a bit. Um, and I have to say that grocery shopping behavior pre-COVID um, was just wildly different. I think we're still seeing it today where, you know, and just because you see a 12 can case of Pellegrino or Perry doesn't mean that you're automatically just going to buy it right then and there and have that shipped to you. Uh, people tend to add to their grocery cart over time. So we really focus on add to cart, um, you know, giving consumers, you know, options when it comes to which retailer they engage with. Um, I still don't, I still think there's a lot of opportunity in that space, but that's something I'm pretty jazzed about um, on the marketing. I'm trying to understand headless commerce more these days. And I feel like that idea of just these, you know, these stores being integrated into these social platforms, that's kind of it because the back end is still going to be fulfilled elsewhere. So you still have to have those APIs talking. But I'm interested in, in the way that individual creators are going to have their own stores. And that almost and that that's sort of the next play to because as you say, influencers collapse the funnel in a lot of ways. So just go all the way and have these influencers have their own stores, their own brands, their own, uh, you know, private labels as well. Uh, and that's, that was something I know you, you spoke about it in the pre-interview a little bit about um, what a big player on the space private labels are. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, private labels are fascinating because if you look at them um, in the U.S., they've been pretty underdeveloped compared to other regions or other countries or continents like Europe. And so I think the private label or the store brand of today looks very different from what most people think about when they think private label. And my favorite example is uh, Target's Mondo Llama. So Mondo Llama, if you have young kids, um, it's a great kids craft brand that launched out of Target. Um, they seemingly over, uh, launched overnight with about 200 SKUs, all about a $5 price point, national distribution, e-commerce, right? Full e-commerce within the Target site. And I think that just shows you the strength and power of private label, especially through e-commerce today. So when you think about it, retailers historically had to make that trade off between charging manufacturers or companies slotting fees. So the fee that they charge you to put your product on their shelf once they accept, you know, once they decide that they want to purchase your product um, or giving their or themselves that shelf space. And so now with e-commerce, you know, they really don't have to have any trade-offs. They can continue to accept slotting fees, but still have the infinite shelf to list their products and test and learn on it. Um, I think when you think about retailer search algorithms, you know, most people search category terms. So that really benefits private label as well. Um, and so private label, because they understand the algorithm or how their retailer search algorithm works, can optimize their own items to come at the top of search and then continue to charge brands paid search dollars. And they have um, all that so data. I, <laughs> so instead of double right? dipping, it's a little bit of triple dipping, which I think is an amazing business model. Um, and so I, I don't think we talk um, as much about private label as a threat as we should be. I think, and they, because they have all that data, they have that real world re retail data where they would have seen that huge spike in parents having to all of a sudden work and keep their kids occupied. And so they can almost jump that curve and create the private label, go direct to consumer in that vertical because they know the demand will be there. That's really interesting. Uh, so I wanted to ask about like, you know, we've talked about a few of the, the initiatives you put through with, with merch and some other areas. What would you say has been one of your favorite integrations that you can speak of, of marketing technology or, or a specific initiative that you've put in place? 
Sure. Uh, I have a couple of them. I think my most favorite one from the last year to two years is our Toll House Cookie Coach. Um, so if you haven't checked her out yet, you can go to the Toll House website and our Toll House Cookie Coach is our digital human. Her name is Ruth. She is named after Ruth Wakefield, who's the founder of Toll House, actually the Toll House Inn. And Ruth was an entrepreneur and she invented the chocolate chip cookie. And I love that activation because it's based on consumer insight and real business need and, and, you know, intersecting with consumer need. So Ruth, as a digital human, can answer all of your cookie baking questions. She has effectively three things that she can help you with. Uh, First of all, she can help you bake through the uh, original chocolate chip cookie recipe. Um, She will show you step by step. She has video tutorials and images to show you how your dough should look. And then the second route you can take is to customize your cookie recipe. So you can choose if you have a dietary preference, you know, if you're gluten-free, low sugar, um, you can choose your chocolate chips or your chocolate morsels that you want. And you can also select the texture um, and she will generate your own personalized um, chocolate chip cookie recipe for you. And the third thing she can do is something we call that cookie 911. So if you have just a quick question that you want to ask her about, you know, she's happy to give you the answer. And I think it's really easy to look at that project as a bright and shiny digital, you know, case of using a digital human. But it's really grounded in consumer insight because we were doing some work around um, looking at our customer service data. So large organizations, I think there are very few channels where we interact one to one with consumers each and every day. And customer service is a huge channel for that. So through customer service, we record about 45,000 hours of calls a year. Um, so when you get that prompt at the beginning of the call and says where it's being recorded for, you know, quality assurance. And that's absolutely the case, right? That's why we go back through transcripts. People listen to those? I had no idea. Yeah. So so we do listen to those. There's a whole team, you know, they do it, you know, at a regular cadence. Um, but we're looking through it and spotted some, and this is across the entire portfolio, right? It's not 45,000 hours of calls just for Toll House alone annually. But we saw that there were some anomalies in the Toll House data. And the Toll House calls from consumers tend to be longer than any of the other products. And we saw that even the case classification was different. So for Toll House, people were calling in for cookie or recipe troubleshooting. Whereas for the other brands, it was largely where to buy. Do you have a coupon? You know, uh, you know inquiries of that nature. So for Toll House, we said, all right, cool. People are calling us about the recipe. They have some issues with it. Um, you know, maybe it's a substitution. They have baking powder instead of baking soda, um, or they're looking to make it gluten-free. Um, and the reality was that their experience was very inconsistent um, because your experience differed based on who you were talking to at the time. So if you were connected to a brand ambassador who was a very avid baker, you would have an amazing experience because they would know exactly what to do. But if you were connected with a brand ambassador who is amazing, but is not well-versed in baking, then you would effectively have a poor experience. So the question for us was, how might we use technology to provide a consistent and excellent consumer experience that can fluctuate with the volume of calls coming in during the time of year? Because bake season is really big in Q4 for us. So that's why we decided to go on this journey Um, You know, the strategy itself took about a year um, because we were, you know, we weren't looking to build a digital human. Um, We thought that maybe there was a, you know, a voice skill at the end of it. Um, But it was really around, hey, here's this observable problem that we have. Here's a problem that we as Toll House are uniquely positioned to solve for the consumer. And so how might we do that through technology? 
And what is, may I ask, a digital human? Like, is this a Bayesian logic tree? Or like what, we're getting real deep real quick here, but what does it mean to be a virtual human? Yeah, so digital human. So if you think about, I think Lil Michaela is probably the um, most yeah. well-known version of a digital human. And so this is a digital representation of a person. Um, oftentimes, you know, and we use our partner in this with Soul Machines, uh, what they specialize in is autonomous animation. So based on what the person, the digital human is saying, they can code their facial features to um, do that, to mimic that, you know, automatically. Um, a lot of times before you would have to, you know, say, all right, well, this person is saying hi. And so I need to code her face, very Pixar-like, to say that hi. And so digital humans, you know, they are a digital representation, a digital avatar of a person. Um, Ruth is not based on the likeness of any existing human that we know of. <laughs> so we went through um, quite a few rounds of deciding, all right, well, if someone were to embody Toll House as the ambassador, what would she look like? What would she sound like? What are some things that she would say? So with with designing um, conversational AI or, or conversation design, it is more designed than people think. So to your point about having like a decision tree, it is effectively mm. that. Um, and I think a lot of people had, uh, you know, a lot of people internally at the time said, all right, well, why, why doesn't she work like Siri or why doesn't she work like Alexa? And that's really just not how voice skills work. And that's not exactly how, you know, conversational design works. We're just like not that advanced at this point. Um, but, you know, we certainly took inspiration from Lil Michaela, who's an entirely, you know, digital human who's, uh, she's got millions of followers on yep. Instagram. She's played a DJ set at Coachella. She's been in an ad campaign with Bella Hadid. And so this idea of the blending of, you know, real versus digital, and we can certainly talk about the metaverse, um, I think is really coming into play. DTC Podcast is brought to you by Trust, the community-powered corporate card built for your marketing investments. The Trust team spent years building Snap's ad platform, and now they're helping DTC businesses grow smarter. With Trust, you can get 45-day payment terms, up to 20 times higher credit limits, and there's no founder liability. You also get access to the latest investment trends across the major ad platforms, so you can invest with more confidence. It's free, and right now, Trust is extending a special offer to the DTC community, 60-day payment terms, and a $500 credit. Visit trust.co slash partner slash D2C to learn more and start growing your business in good company. I just want, I just want to ask, how did you, de- I love, like, it sounds like an amazing project. How did you judge the success of it? How was the pickup with it? Did people get lost in the uncanny valley? Was it like uh, the Polar Express or, or, or do people really resonate with a, uh, with, uh, sorry, with Ruth. with Ruth. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question. You know, when it comes to uncanny Valley, it's not something that's actually measurable. And so uncanny Valley is when a human interacts with something and your brain is telling yourself that it's not quite real. So to your point about polar express, you know, I think it's the animated version you're talking about with Tom Hanks as the voice It's uh, people will say things like, well, you know, it comes off creepy and they can't articulate why. So we actually did do some research around that um, at the very beginning of the project and said, all right, well, Uncanny Valley has not been solved for, um, but how concerning is it? And is there anything we can do to mitigate, um, you know, kind of the Uncanny Valley? And so in testing, we actually tested a couple of different avatars. We had the photorealistic one, which is what we went with. And then we said, well, what about a, a Clippy or something like the modern day Clippy, right? Within Microsoft <laughs> Word. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly, chippy maybe. Um, or do we go with something that is very Pixar-like? 
Yeah. And so through the testing, it was we were really kind of floored by the results because the visual didn't impact people that much when it came to uncanny Valley, but it actually came to the voice mm. people, you know, I think because of the rise of gaming and because of the idea of bitmojis and digital avatars, people were a little more comfortable with interacting with avatars than they were before, but they wanted her to sound realistic. So when it comes to your conversational AI uh, voice text stack, what you have is you have speech to text, you have an NLP engine, and then you have text to speech. So speech to text and NLP, we ended up going with Google Dialogflow. But when it came to text to speech, we actually evaluated a ton of different voices across vendors and ended up going with um, AWS uh, Polyneural. Um, so it's um, a default voice, um, but the pacing was very similar to a real human. And the reason why we wanted to use a synthetic voice rather than using a voice actor was because it gave us more flexibility in what Ruth could say. Um, so we could just go in the system and update, you know, something that she would say and, you know, that audit, that update would be made automatically. Whereas if you go with a voice actor, you would have to get them back into the studio and then they would have to record it and things like that. And, and one thing that I'm exceptionally proud of um, for Ruth, our, our cookie coach, is that she was entirely developed during covid um, so we work with teams all across the world. I don't think any of us have actually been together in person. Um, and, and so it was a really fun but but challenging project. That's interesting. And and how did you judge success on it? Was it a, a, an amount of use? So with success, people ask me all the time, right? And I think that you can go really technical and say, all right, well, when it comes to call deflections, right? Because in, in the initial... Um, intention of the project, we really wanted to even that consumer experience when people were calling in. And it turned out that it wasn't really about deflection because Ruth and the cookie coach as an experience was a bit more proactive. Mm. Like people would reach out before they hit a problem to mitigate that problem. So our original hypothesis was wrong. That wasn't really um, a great success metric. I think we can certainly get there, but we have to add features like, you know, human operator handoff and, and things like that. Um, and so Ruth, as she is today, is very much version one. Um, and in her roadmap, we talk about her as a version 15. And so we have a lot planned for her. But know that when it comes to technology, it's obviously extremely iterative and based on consumer feedback. So I've been telling the teams that we gauge success based on does it spark joy? Uh, and people think that's really fuzzy. But, but the reality is that it actually translates to a business objective. So when you are shopping for chocolate chips or chocolate morsels, you have a ton of different options, including private label, as we discussed before. And so it's a highly commoditized category. Um, it's just that the branding is different. So what we wanted to do is that if a consumer decides to buy Toll House, we wanted them to feel supported throughout the baking process. And so as they're baking, they would use Ruth. They would feel good uh, that they made the right decision. And then that would drive repurchase. So it's kind of the whole intent of it. And of course, with version one, we really were pretty open to, you know, what we're going to get back. And so what's been really fascinating is that the average session length has been ranging from about nine to 13 minutes. So if you're in the marketing world, the idea that a consumer is actively engaging with you for that period of time is almost unheard of. Um, so we're really enjoying that. We're getting a lot of great feedback um, within the experience. And one thing that was unexpected was that people wanted to learn more about her backstory. Um, people have asked her about, you know, who her favorite musician is. And I think that speaks to us all feeling a little lonely during COVID. Um, but it also means that people want to learn more about her. So we're, we're really excited to 
And it's another avenue through which you engage the customer. Not Maybe not everyone is into it, but it's an area that you're also in a company as big as Nestle. It's just, it's this area that you're able to pioneer, which is pretty exciting as well. Cause yeah, I, I'm, you know, you mentioned a couple things that I just really piqued my interest, you know, Facebook's big announcement about the metaverse. Let's just tell me, like, I, I know very little about this. I understand it's a digital corollary to the physical world a little bit, but tell me a little bit about what the metaverse is and how you see it playing into CPG in the future. Sure. So the metaverse, I would use a couple of examples. I would say, I think, you know, our current understanding of the metaverse is very much based off of the book Ready Player One, right? Which we know that all those tech execs have read and then kind of modeled the VR space um, after. And so the metaverse is effectively the digital world that we would live in. And you could buy goods, you could buy t-shirts, you could buy furniture, you could, you know, buy weapons or tools. And so I think that really came to life during uh, the beginning of COVID with the popularity of Animal Crossing. You've also got Fortnite, which actually has just virtual concerts like Travis Scott. And I believe it was just announced that Ariana Grande is going to be playing a concert in the game itself. And so the metaverse um, is really this digital manifestation of a separate universe that you could live in and it would have an avatar and occupy in. And that's really interesting because it speaks to a couple of trends or, or different things that we're seeing in the space. So one is this idea of blurring between physical and digital and this idea of ownership. Um, you know, when we talk about digital ownership, I mean, this is where NFTs come up and we can kind of go all day with this. But then it also comes to the fact that people, um, especially the younger generations like millennials and Gen Z, don't feel like they can afford real estate anymore. Right. Or these like original or stereotypical trappings of success aren't as available to them as the previous generations. Mm. So you've got different, um, you know, companies coming up to try to solve that problem. One is Rent the Runway, where their tagline is your wardrobe in the cloud. Uh, you've got, you know, new companies that offer you fractional ownership of vacation property. So you can literally buy an eighth of a vacation home, which is, I guess, similar to um, timeshare. What are yeah, timeshares. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And so I think there's all these forces that are kind of and increased time in online. Right. Like we don't go online anymore. We just are online. And so there, there's all these different forces that are kind of reshaping, like how you engage with other people and, and what you own and what you don't. And so the metaverse is really fascinating because as people spend more time on, you know, in Animal Crossing or Fortnite and want to buy shirts or buy goods for their avatar, they're spending real money on it. Mm. And so the question for brands is like, where can I play in that space that feels authentic to the brand and to the audience, knowing that they're going to be spending time there? It's really about, you know, um, fishing where the fish are. Right. Like the toll house. Like I would probably go to the toll house. If you could coordinate an appointment where I could visit the toll house and you would deliver some hot cookie, you know, some warm cookies out of the oven and I could go hang out with Ruth, that I feel might be a good implementation on the metaverse. That's, have you had any thoughts about Nestle, how Nestle might interact with the metaverse? I have. Um, yeah, I think a natural extension would be our merch stores, right? Um, would be that, hey, with your like mac and cheese sweatsuit or your Hot Pockets, you know, uh, yeah, sleeping yeah. bag, you would have a version of that in the metaverse. Where exactly is hard to say. And I think that a lot of those games have restrictions on how brands monetize in their space, which is totally understandable. Um, and so that's something that, you know, is top of mind. We're not actively actioning against it, but, you know, there's 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 stuff brewing. Um, and then, you know, we, we talked to the, you know, preview too about uh, gaming 
and just gamers in general and creators in that space. And so we did have a, an activation late last year called Pockets for Bits for Hot Pockets, where you could go buy some Hot Pockets and you would scan the receipt to get points that you could redeem for Twitch bits and then use it on Twitch. And we had an entire program around creators, streamers that we were supporting. And there were different uh, points associated with different pack sizes for, for Hot Pockets. And so I think that's kind of like a first foray into understanding the value exchange um, that, you know, gamers in the gaming community would actually want from a brand rather than something kind of dorky, like, you know, a dollar off of a box of Hot Pockets. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned right off the hop, you mentioned one of the things on your mind is AI. Uh, and I'm always into, I've, I've been in digital marketing now for over 10 years and there, the amount of companies that have attached AI to their name that really probably, you know, or, or didn't, didn't have a lot of AI that actually, you know, that, as far as I could discern, it was great. And so I'm curious, like, what are your, your top level thoughts on AI right now in the, in your world, in the CBG world? Sure. I, I completely agree. I think a lot of companies tack on AI or machine learning to get a higher valuation or to get someone's ears to perk up. Uh, and and so the uh, one of the tools or charts that I tend to use is the Gartner hype cycle. Uh, and it's really funny because when things are at the peak of the hype cycle, like I think NFTs and metaverse are right now, um, if you run a Google search for it, I think a lot of consultancies will actually have paid search terms against it. So that's usually my, my pretty quick um, and like hacky way of trying to see if something is a, at the peak of the hype cycle. Um, but for artificial intelligence, I mean, a lot of it is rules based. A lot of it is math. I think that a lot of the conversation around it um, makes it feel like it's a silver bullet. So I've literally had conversations with people who said, well, if we just had more AI, this would solve the problem. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to push back on more AI. Um, just <laughs> I don't actually even know what that means. Yeah. But um, for AI or automation to truly work, you have to have very clean, structured data. And, you know, I've been in the digital marketing space, I guess, for, you know, 10 to 15 years now, however you want to chop it. But um, one of the things was that, you know, it was the data lake, right? Remember the age of, I guess this was back in 2013 about, where every large CPG was like talking about the data lake. And the reality is there's a lot of unstructured data. And, and I think in a large part, it still is today. And a lot of data scientist work is to like go in and clean up and like, you know, make sure that the labels are right and the data is refreshed and, and all of that stuff. And so I think AI, like depending on what you want to automate, you have to have a pretty clear articulation of what you're trying to achieve. Um, but I, I agree. I think the, day, the word AI has been largely bandied about when it's just really describing rules based, um, you know, or, or math, really. Here's where I think it's going. I think, you know, as the metaverse grows and as there's more Internet of Things in the real world, like we'll, we'll be able to create like a, a data lake, a, a data ocean. You know what I mean? The amount of d data that will be created in that. And I feel like AI is what we will use to interact with our node on the blockchain or whatever is going to be in, in, in the next system. And we're going to like license data to our personal AIs. We're gonna have like AI butlers. Like, you know how butlers used to know like more than the people, they used to know more about their, their you know, their boss's life than the boss did because they had this other perspective on them. I think we're going to license AI butlers to be like, okay, tell me really how I can lose five pounds. Or like, like, I think we'll, I think we'll have these butlers that we license with our personal data to, to give us advice and to help us live better lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's a really great hypothesis because you're seeing that in the world of personalized nutrition right now, right? Mm. With on the one end, people who just want to 
do a little like eat better for you options. And then on the other range, you've got biohackers. And these are all people who are proactively trying to mitigate their health. And they're trying to, to your point with IOT, like trying to do that in various ways. And so I have an Apple watch. I had a whoop band for a while. And then I was like, oh, this is just redundant. Um, but with biohacking and people caring more about their health and just this idea of um, I think a better understanding of like gut brain health and of, you know, personal performance, I think absolutely. I mean, there's definitely going to be a world where it would have to be brand and platform agnostic, I think, for an AI butler, just so that you have that ability to personalize what you're personalized nutrition ecosystem looks like yeah um, but yeah i mean i think that's a that's probably what's gonna happen <laughs> but it's also it's potentially how you'll interact with your own data as well right like we may come to a point where people really do understand with the power of their data and then they'll actually license it and they'll license it to hot pockets in exchange for a, a hoodie or or a steady stream of hot pockets right like i think yeah i think i think it's gonna be some interesting times for sure. Very cool. Uh, well, the one last thing I mentioned, you mentioned it in some of the things that you, three things that you sort of see on the horizon. One of them was, uh, you know, talking about this whole uh, roll up environment. I would, you know, and, and all these DTC companies rolling up. And I was, I was on a thread the other day and I was like, I'm just going to start a roll up of roll ups. And I'm like, I'm sure that's already happening. I'm sure that's already, maybe Nestle is doing that. What, what do you, what do you think of when you think about this, the DTC um, holding company space, essentially? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's they're trying to create the new model of CPG uh, because the current CPG model was pioneered around the World War II era and has largely remained unchanged since then. So the things that made uh, current large CPGs big, I, I don't think will continue to do so. Um, and one thing that I'm pretty open about is that large organizations, it's really hard to affect change. and It's really hard to bring in innovation because you know the system is built to withstand disruption. It's a feature, it's not a bug. Yep. And so I do you know, believe that we and our leadership are very serious about it and, and there's a lot of work against it, but it is one of those things where there has to be concerted effort um, from leadership. So I think when it comes to the CPG roll-ups, I mean, the reality is that growth is gonna be harder to find for everybody. Um, but D2Cs, I mean, I heard some stat like 600 ready-to-drink beverage brands, not SKUs, were launched last year. And so I think there are going to be these companies that will have shared services, right? When you try to say, all right, well, you know, maybe they're trying to play in a category. Maybe they're trying to play in a room, right? Some of those holding companies are saying like, hey, we want to own the kitchen. Yep. And so a lot of Pat their acquisitions, rest, yeah. yeah, a lot of their acquisitions are centered around the kitchen. Um, I think it's smart. Um, I think it depends on, you know, there is obviously opportunity and efficiencies in scale. There's also effectiveness when you look at all these D2C brands trying to do stuff themselves, whether it's financing, invoicing, you know, sales, wholesale distribution, things like that, that can probably be centralized. Um, but I think it's going to be really, really messy before there are some clear winners. I think people have this idea with big companies that when you launch a product or you create a product or when you buy, acquire a product that it's just like it must be easy for them because they've got the grocery store relationships and they've got like what is what's the hit rate like for like products that are launched at Nestle that that really do well that are able to scale let's say scale. Yeah, I can't I can't talk to specifics on it, but you know, for us what's always helpful is when you have a subline or product innovation that's embedded in an existing brand because all of a sudden you already have that brand awareness and retailers know what what you're selling, right? Um and so we do have a lot of innovation under DiGiorno. Um we launched a new brand called Life Cuisine. 
which is similar to lean cuisine, um, but more for the modern consumer. And so whenever you have like a nationally known household name of a brand and you launch a subline or um, a new innovation under it, it's usually easier. Um, but building net new brands, I think, is just an entirely different muscle. Um, and just because, you know, you're a large company doesn't mean that you're you're going to get it 100 percent right. And you're also not using the Nestle brand name in a lot of those cases, right? A lot of those companies that you launch internally, it's like a Prince and the Popper type situation where, you know, you just you want to you want these things to launch on their own rights. And it's not always that the main brand would be a benefit, like a lot of people might think outwardly. Yes, that's right. So Nestle as a master brand, I think, is a bit challenging in the U.S. because it just doesn't it's not as well known as global. Like there are certainly some countries and regions where like, you know, you say it's Nestle and people know, you know, that it stands for quality, that it's big, that it has a lot of brands underneath it. That's that's just not the case in the U.S. Um, most of the time I get asked about our candy or confection portfolio, which is, you know, Kit Kat, Butterfinger, which we actually divested in the U.S. a couple of years ago. Um, and we also, you know, people just don't really know that we also have the Starbucks grocery business. Um, or that, you know, we have some acquisitions like Sweet Earth, Freshly, you know, Chameleon, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and so I think Nestle is a master brand and like all the brands that go under it just, just doesn't really go as far in the U.S. as other countries. Makes sense. Okay. We usually ask this question. We offer a fifth. We say, Hey, we're, we're going to give you a 50 K hypothetical marketing budget. We're going to, we're going to go, we're going to go a 500 K. We're going to say, we can just give you 500 K for any money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Like, well, Okay, let's take it to 100K. Let's just take it to 100K that you can put into one of your brands in any marketing initiative or any sort of marketing-related technology initiative. Where would you put that right now? Oh, that's such a great question. I'm like going through every single brand's like brand objective and persona right now. <laughs> so, um, so bear with me. Yeah, um, yeah. I think... I think it's like I love the creator economy. I love that space. I think it's so fascinating how we've really evolved from and there's a stat bandied about or the saying for a long time now that consumers are more likely to trust strangers on the Internet rather than, you know, brands themselves. And so I, I think my whole team knows I have a personal passion for TikTok. Um, and it's not so much that the algorithm has has called out my high functioning ADHD, but, but more so because people are just so wildly creative. And, and so like, I would love to take a brand, like, I think people could have a lot of fun with Hot Pockets. I think people could have a lot of fun, even, even surprisingly with Coffee Mate, right. Of like making their own drink or whatever it is. I mean, oh, those Coffee Mate stories. Remember those, was it the Coffee Mate stories that was sort of like, you could do like a soap opera over TikTok. That'd be interesting. Yeah, that would be really fun. Um, we have a little character named Gingerbread Joel um, during the holidays for our gingerbread flavor. I think that would be really fun on TikTok um, if we had some kind of, you know, lens associated or something like that. But, you know, yeah. I, I have a lot of heart for the platform largely for the creators. Um, and I think there are a couple of brands you could play with. Just the fact that it, that you get so much instant access as an individual to, to, you know, get to that level of creation is I think just what's, what's making it this sort of game changing platform. Live video, as we know, is really where all of these platforms are going at, to this model, uh, which is very exciting. Um, and no, I'm a total, I talk about TikTok on every single podcast. So I got, I got, I got, <laughs> my cool team's actually tired of it because I yeah. will say, oh, I saw this thing on Twitter or like, yeah. here's a TikTok about it. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that high functioning ADHD thing. I think like I, there's like, there's like wall street journal articles about that, about like a whole generation of people being called out with ADHD by TikTok algorithms. 
No, nope, it makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> Orkin, I want to thank you so much for coming on the DDC podcast today. If people want to learn more about you, get in touch with you, how do you recommend that they do that? Uh, they can reach me on Twitter. It's at Orchid Bertelson. Um, or, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way. That's <laughs> the nice. quickest response. My DMs are open. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.